Hello, thank you for your interest in the Ocean Mind Sangha. Uh, these uh, talks are recorded live. I give them from the south of Mexico, where I live. And they usually happen on Wednesday evenings during our sit, our Wednesday sit. And we offer these talks freely. But if you would like to offer a donation, know that that is always much, much appreciated. Um, your support allows me to dedicate more time to writing and teaching about the Dharma. Uh, it supports the operations of the Ocean Mind Sangha, and it allows us to offer scholarships, especially for classes, uh, for people who might need them. Uh, if you would like to offer a donation, you can visit uh, my website at vanessasuisegoddard.org. Thank you again for your practice and your support. In the Buddha, his teaching, in the fellowship most excellent, we take our refuge until enlightenment. By the merit of generosity and other transcendent virtues, may we attain Buddhahood for the sake of all that lives. May the merits of these teachings benefit all beings. May these words help and not harm. <clears throat> May they clarify and not confuse. May they self-liberate, leaving no trace behind. Picture a stormy night. The smell of rain, the peal of thunder. An old woman is alone in her sitting room, which is dimly lit and filled from floor to ceiling with photographs. There's a wood stove and a fire crackling in it. Two bowls next to it for the dog's kibble, for the cat's milk. One of the lamps in the corner flickers, deepening the shadows on the gramophone's humongous horn. It's gold, like the rug and the old reading chair the woman is sitting in, knitting her needles faintly clicking. And across from the old woman, whose face is made of paper mache, lies an old dog made entirely of yarn. And he sighs now and then or raises his head at the thunder. And if you look closely, you see that all the photographs on the walls are of the woman and this dog, whose name is Jackson. Photos from pup to old hound, young woman to old crone, they're playing frisbee, they're going on a picnic, they're canoeing on a lake, looking adoringly at one another. And then there's two cats that pass by, an old female Tom and her white, and her white kitten. They walk across the room and Jackson kind of growls at them under his breath. The woman puts a record on the gramophone and autumn leaves 
fills the room. And as the piano plays, she sings softly to herself. And at one point, Jackson joins in, howling in tune. And then there's a knock on the door. Jackson looks up. He looks at the old woman who just keeps on knitting. There's a crack of thunder and now there's pounding on the door and the rain starts to come down harder. And Jackson growls more loudly now, and the old woman, realizing there's somebody at the door, hobbles over to open it. It's a bright yellow door, the brightest thing in the house. And when it's opened, framed in it, is the grim reaper. All dry bones and gray rags, a staff in his hand and a hood covering his skull. Jackson growls, hard, growls harder. He lets out a bark and the woman just shushes him, pointing to the guest. She can't see well, so she confuses death with a young girl scout. And she invites her into tea, figuring she must be freezing in the pouring rain. And death, a little surprised, follows her in and sits down at the kitchen table. <coughs> and he has tea and the madeleines the woman offers him. While Jackson undoes himself, trying to get rid of the unwelcome guest. The protective hound all the way to the end. And first he grabs a corner of death's robe in his mouth and he pulls him back and again, the woman yells at him in a very soft French accent to stop. Then he runs over to the other room, grabs his leash and comes back to the kitchen, whining to be taken out. And the woman says, you just went out. She's not taken in. <coughs> so he decides he needs a distraction. He sees the cat go into the bedroom, and so he follows her. The door closes behind them, and all hell breaks loose. There's glass breaking, there's a, a lamp falls over, the, cat, the cat's meowing, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> sounds of a scuffle. And when the door opens again, Jackson slinks out his tail between his legs, and the cat just sits there licking his paws. And then Jackson brings the kitten to death as an offering. Well, don't take her. Why don't you take this tiny kitten with eyes as big as his head? And Death takes the young cat, you know, very, very gingerly, and he sets it on the table next to him, and then he gently strokes him with his bony hand. And so knowing it's his last chance, Jack Jackson just attacks death directly. He knocks him off the chair, grabs his staff. He's not going to let go. <coughs> and one more time, the woman scolds him and this time shuts him out of the room. And Jackson sits outside the kitchen, just looking up at the doorknob, crying, pouring the door. 
And after a moment or two, he gives up, he goes to his bed, he lies down. At first he knocks down one of the photos and then he kind of cradles it in his paws. And a moment later, the door opens and Jackson just dashes into the kitchen. He looks around for a brief moment, he doesn't see her. He doesn't see his owner. And you think, that's it, she's gone. And then there she is, just crossing the kitchen. She goes over to the sink, washes the teacups. And Jackson looks at her and he looks at death, confused. And death just looks back at him. And then death hunches down and he whispers something. Only Jackson hears. And he goes, And Jackson looks into the kitchen and he howls once, very softly. The woman doesn't hear him. So she doesn't see Jackson follow death out the door. And as they're walking down the lane side by side, the rain stops and the sun comes out from behind the clouds. And for a moment, death's robe glistens with rainbows. Jackson stops to look back at the house and Death takes a bone from his pocket and he throws it <clears throat> and Jackson bounds after it to the sound of autumn leaves. <clears throat> it's late fall now almost beginning of winter and of course this is a time when death and dying are more <clears throat> apparent although death is inseparable from life always And the story I described is from a, a short, an animated short called Death and the Lady. And if you haven't seen it, please do. It is beautiful. It's on the New Yorker's website. And it got me thinking about death. <coughs> of course, life's one certainty. It's ineluctable end. But I was thinking also that is in great part what got us all here. I mean, perhaps not directly, perhaps not consciously. <coughs> but think how different life would be if we did not die. How would we live if we could live forever? Death was one of the four signs or sights that the Buddha saw where he, when he left the palace with old age sickness. Death, and then he saw a mendicant, he saw a wanderer. These were signs he couldn't ignore, he couldn't forget, and eventually he had to do something. 
about them. I mean, it, there's something we all have to do something about sooner or later. And I think generally speaking, we would rather not. Not anytime soon and preferably ever. But then what happens is we're surprised, offended by sickness, old age and death, the surging waves. If you remember that prayer that Lama Yeshe and Lama Zopa have um, <coughs> shared with us. May I liberate all beings from the ocean of existence with its surging waves of birth, aging, illness, and death. We get surprised. We get offended by these waves. Like a man who was in a retirement home and he said, you know, I was a good father. I was a good husband. I worked hard all my life. I exercised. I climbed mountains. Why am I here? as if someone had broken the contract. <clears throat> you know that Google owns a company called Calico, who's trying to solve the problem of death. But death isn't a problem to be solved. Neither is life. <clears throat> And yet it's not easy to live or die, or, or it's not easy to live or die well. And it is not easy to lose something or someone. If you've gone through it, you know how interminable the day suddenly feel. You know, it's hard to enjoy things that before delighted you. You look around and you wonder, how in the world are people just living, just going about their, their lives, their business, having breakfast, talking about the latest political circus, going for walks? And maybe you tell yourself, you know, it's not so bad. It's not so bad. You know, just get over it. I mean, people are suffering on the other side of the world. Why are you still struggling with this? But for a while, you know, no matter what you tell yourself, it's, it's, you can't quite feel yourself. It's like, like you have cling wrap wrapped around you. And so there's, there's this veil, there's this layer between you and the world. And so loss in any form is hard. The loss of our vitality, our passion, our mobility, our equity, our sharpness, the loss of people we love, places we know, things that break, we get lost. But you know what's harder? To live as if we get to keep these. To live as if what we have, we'll always have. That's much much harder because it's not true, because it's not the way things are. And one mm, helpful thing to keep in mind 
is that what we still have is never less than what we lack. You know, if we could keep that equation in mind, then we'd be well on our way to freedom. Or at the very least, to acceptance, which is a form of freedom. In some ways, um, Buddhism is a tradition that aims to help us become comfortable with losing everything. Tibetan Buddhists just say it plainly. When it comes to life and death, all of practice is to prepare us for dying. Which in a way is saying all of practice is to prepare us for living. have a friend whose eight-year-old said to her many years ago, isn't it true, mom, that the moment we're born, we start dying? And I thought to myself, I hope you don't forget this. I hope you don't forget having asked this question, having seen this truth. Because in a way, this is the best part of life. Maybe a little bit of an upside down way, but the fact that we die on a par with our living. I mean, this is what makes life so flush with itself. So imperative. And because we die as we live in each and every moment, and at the last moment, that means that we can die and live with grace, with presence, with infinite gratitude and appreciation. I mean, we think to ourselves, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful to just live on and on? Like Woody Allen said. But is that really true? Would it? Would it be so good to live on and on? Or would you choose death with your living, loss with your finding, because that is what gives life its preciousness, its edge. I mean, I know I would, I would rather I would rather risk losing and being hurt than the illusion of always having. I was reading the story of, of a woman who uh, essentially finds love, finds the love of her life as her father is dying. She can't imagine such loss. She's very close to him. She can't imagine the world without him. And in that perhaps most difficult time in her life, she finds something so vast that she also could not ever have imagined 
and she thinks I have to mark this. I have to, to make this more permanent. So I'll ask her to marry me. <coughs> and the first opportunity is at her father's bedside because they think so that he can be there, so that he can share in such joy. But she thinks, I can't, I can't mix that much joy with that much sorrow. The second chance comes when they're both sick. The two women are in bed. Their sheets are just sodden with sweat. Their eyes are crusted over. They're two big balls of mucus, basically. <laughs> and she thinks to herself, in sickness and in health, yes, yes, this is how it is. And decides, this is it. This is the time to ask. And then she looks around and she thinks, you know, I mean, anything short of a trip to the landfill would be more romantic, <laughs> a more romantic setting for the proposal. So with, with difficulty, she holds her tongue. And then the third chance comes, they're laying down the flooring of their house, <coughs> a run-of-the-mill day in a run-of-the-mill week. And she thinks, today, today. And then she's about to ask, and her partner shares with her um, a sermon that she was helping officiate once, and it was Ash Wednesday. And a young girl, you know, goes up to the altar and realizes very late what day it is and what it means. And as she's about to get that sign of the cross on her forehead, she just hollers <clears throat> at the top of her lungs, I don't want to die. And they both laugh. And then she proposes. And they marry, confirming that they'll go on living and dying together. So this is what I think. That we do live as we die and we die as we live. That these things happen simultaneously is not the right word. Mm, interdependently. And so that to live dying is to live knowing this isn't forever. Right? And just pause that for a moment and really take that in. This isn't forever. Because I think we have uh, an uncannily strong <clears throat> built-in mechanism that protects us from really knowing that. I suppose it's our survival instinct. But I do remind myself of this. I try to, you know, as I'm scrolling through Instagram, and I think, this was my last hour. Is this how I would spend it? And yet it is hard to take in that I won't be here always. It is very difficult to accept. 
it's difficult to accept that what I have now, I will not always have. Not in this way, and one day, not at all. In one sense, life is, is a continuous, a continuous series of losses. I was, I was about to say, unless you get rid of that way of seeing, of losing and gaining altogether. But it's not even unless, it's, that's true whether you see it that way or not. Because what does that loss really entail where there is no place where we are not? I shared this earlier in the, in the newsletter. I am life entire, which is not struck from stones, nor budded from branches, but all that is rooted is rooted in me. And since all vitality blazes forth from me, I also serve. And I am life eternally the same without beginning or end. Kill the guard of bringing. This is from the book of Divine Works. And that life eternally the same is neither eternal nor, not the, nor the same. <laughs> but I think she knows that. It's more without beginning or end. In Buddhism we say it's beginningless and endless, or birthless and deathless. I am life entire without beginning or end. Therefore, I am death entire without beginning or end. Master Dogen says in Genja Koan, life is superior unto itself. Death is superior unto itself. Life does not become death. How can that be? Hildegard is saying, I neither am nor am not. You see? To be or not to be, that is not the question. Said Thich Nahan. To live or to die is not the question either. And so then what is the question? How, how do we understand all this? <clears throat> If what we are in the midst of is neither existence nor non-existence, which is what Buddhism posits, then what is it? How is it? And how do I live and die in it? I am the supreme and fiery force who has kindled all sparks